Welcome to another episode of We Don't Die. I'm your host, Sandra Champlain, author of the international best-selling book called We Don't Die, A Skeptic's Discovery of Life After Death. We are recording this interview in February 2019, and I'm grateful that more and more people around the globe are interested in the evidence of the afterlife, reading books, listening to radio shows, and attending live conferences. Our guest today is someone who got involved in this conversation long before I did and took a big risk creating the very first afterlife conference back in 2011. Her name is Reverend Terry Daniel, and at the time felt the survival of consciousness beyond physical death wasn't adequately represented in traditional forums, such as scientific or bereavement conferences. Motivated by a desire to share that knowledge, the first conference was produced with the help of several spiritual teachers and afterlife researchers. The conference has grown greatly over the years and now includes a large spectrum of topics and interests, including multicultural death traditions, ceremonial work, religious scholarship, clinical practice, and the intersection of spirituality and psychology. Reverend Terry is a death awareness educator, interfaith minister, clinical chaplain, and author of three books on death and the afterlife. She offers a unique metaphysical perspective on birth, death, and the afterlife through her channeled teachings on religious history, spirituality, and the journey of the soul. You can find out more about Reverend Terry, the original Afterlife Awareness Conference, and the community she has created. There's also great resources to great afterlife videos and audios at the website afterlifeconference.com. Reverend Terry Daniel, a warm welcome to We Don't Die Radio. Hi, thank you for having me. Wonderful to talk to you. Oh, it's wonderful to talk to you. And you're just somebody I've looked up for two, four years. And now that we get to connect, I'm so happy. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. I'm excited just because I've been watching you from a distance, haven't attended one of your conferences, but I see who speaks on your stage. I see the topics and I am, will be there some point, but I'm just so inspired and grateful for the difference that you've made in so many lives. And you continue to do that. Yeah, well, we work pretty hard every year to keep the conference going. It's definitely a labor of love. It's all volunteers. Um, I've got people who've been volunteering since the very first year, and we're now in the ninth year. So it's just kind of amazing every day. I'm so grateful that it's. I wake up in the morning, it's like, really? Is the Afterlife Conference still going on? I'm so grateful. So, yeah, it's been great. And it started because, well, for two reasons. I really wanted to meet some of my heroes. So I was reading all the books, you know, by all the people in afterlife research and people that we admired. And I thought that would be a good way to meet them. I'll have a conference and I'll invite them all to speak. But that, that was just an added benefit. The real reason I started it is because I'll give you the whole story. Back in 2010, 2009-ish, the uh, group, the Compassionate Friends, was having a conference in Portland where I lived, and you're probably familiar with them. It's a group for grieving parents. And my uh, first book had just come out about communications I had with my son from the other side. So I sent them a proposal to speak at their conference, and they sent me back a very nasty letter that said, we absolutely do not allow these types of topics to be addressed at our conference. Oh, so not so compassionate. <laughs> not so compassionate or friendly. And I was shocked, yeah. you know, and so, um, and they were so rude about it. And I said, well, okay, fine. I'll just go start my own conference. And that's all we'll talk about. And so I reached out to people who were leaders in the field at the time, like um, Bill Guggenheim and Sandy Goodman. And uh, we put together this initial little conference and that was our founding team, and it's just kind of turned into this wonderful thing. So, oh, that's so great! So and, I'm very happy, and not knocking compassionate friends, but what I'm finding, and you probably have too, is there's a lot of people that are they, they have a lot of fear, and I know even in the beginning when my book came out, the first thing that showed up is I was afraid what people would think. 
So there mm-hmm. are, I find, groups that may not be ready. Doesn't matter what they believe personally, but putting their neck on their line, saying they believe in the afterlife. But now, 2019, I think more and more and more organizations are getting on the bandwagon. You're seeing more and more on television. Yes, it is. It is coming into the mainstream. And, um, you know, this kind of it goes into this whole politically correct thing about religion. And what happened with Compassionate Friends is their argument was a lot of people will really like this, but a lot of people won't. And it will upset and offend them. And my argument is, well, at your conference, you've got five concurrent sessions going on in every time slot. If people don't want to hear this, they don't have to. It's not like you're making them listen to it. They have other options, but they're just, people are so afraid of touching into something, especially now in this whole PC world, you know, that, that might rub somebody the wrong way against their religious beliefs and their cultural beliefs. And in my opinion, that's exactly what's needed is to scratch the surface of that stuff and, and get people unhooked from beliefs that may be limiting them and inhibiting their ability to heal. Yeah, I like that a lot. I, I obviously have my own beliefs, but I've posted some really interesting, I think, fantastic interviews on YouTube. And I can't tell you how many of the religious zealots have said, I'm going to hell and uh, <laughs> there is no afterlife. You shouldn't be talking to the dead and all these things. So as as much as they're out there, I also know that there's good people that you and I find that this is just exactly what they're looking for. And it's yeah. a home and a connection. And I really dig that about you that you've not just having you're not just having conferences, but you've created a whole community around this topic. Yes, and I love my little community. You know, we've got 13,000 people on our uh, in our Facebook group, which is great. And, you know, the other thing that's happened is when I started out with this, the only thing I had was my own personal experience. You know, my most of my life being a, a metaphysical, metaphysically minded person. But then, of course, I had the experience of my son's death and the communications I had with him after that. And I, I wrote a book and I went out there in the world and started teaching and lecturing. And then I did the conference and I realized pretty quickly that I wanted to be taken seriously in the mainstream. I became a hospice volunteer at that point as well. And I realized the only way that I could get my foot in the door in the mainstream settings was to get a bunch of academic credentials. So I started go. I never went to college when I was young. So I started at age 56 so that I and got a degree in religious studies because I was realizing that in hospice work, I was talking to so many religious people and I wanted to be able to speak their language. And I got so enamored of the whole academic thing that I stayed in school for the next 10 years. Did you? <laughs> yeah, I'm just finishing my doctorate right now. Congratulations. That's yeah. dedication. And you're an inspiration. It's- I, I turned 53 in a couple months, and, uh, and at 56, you started that. Yes, I was a freshman in college at 56. It was hilarious. Um, but I just fell in love with it. And now that I have, and so, you know, I, I was trained as a chaplain. I did chaplaincy internships in hospitals. And now I can go and give a workshop for, you know, uh, the, the National Hospice and Palliative Care Organization or to hospices in different cities, they will let me in the door now. And without all those academic degrees, they wouldn't. And what I realized is that's who I really wanted to reach. Because the woo-woo people already get it. Mm -hmm. And I didn't want to just preach to the choir. I wanted to bring other people in that, you know, doctors and nurses and people who really needed to see this aspect of um, dying in the afterlife. It's so important. And like you said, the the woo-woo people already get it. But when you start having doctors and, you know, people like I just interviewed a doctor the other day who's also he's a he's a physician and he's also a medium, you know, and people like what, you know, but more and more of these stories are coming out that it's it's the real deal. And you get some great people behind it. Yeah. 
Um, and, you know, the other thing you get from really doing some serious study into this stuff is you start to see how long this has been around. It's nothing new that we just came up with, you know, in the new age, which is really ancient, ancient, ancient stuff. But it, you know, talking to the dead is a completely intrinsic and acceptable part of many, many cultures. In, in the Chinese, when somebody dies, or always, they have an altar to the ancestors in their house. And when somebody dies, they add their picture on the altar, and they put money on it and flowers and food, and they keep it up for each person who dies for one year. They interact with that person's presence on the altar. And because they believe that they're still nearby, and they don't grieve the same way we do. Um, of course, they grieve, and they feel sad, and they feel lost, but because they keep the presence of that dead person alive with them for a whole year or longer, as long as they want, um, they don't just, they don't experience this brutal cutting off and letting go that we're taught to do in our culture. And if you look at, you know, look at Mexico in the day of the dead, yes. they absolutely believe that the dead can cross through the veil and come and visit us. This is old, old stuff. It's been around forever. And in many, many cultures, it's, Embraced without question. Did you see the movie Coco, by the way? Oh, yes. Oh, my God. What a great movie. Anyone who hasn't seen that, it is a Disney, I think it's a Disney film. But talk about a great message about the afterlife within a movie. And even though it might be animated, there's plenty of adult humor and it's so good. Yeah, and it makes a beautiful statement about the afterlife. You know, I hope, wish every kid could see it. You know, and then you got to wonder about other kids seeing it and their parents are saying, no, no, that's not really the afterlife because Jesus and the saints aren't there. You know, something like that. So that, that kind of shuts it down. But the whole thing about Jesus and the saints, and this is something that there's a lot of good information out there right now. Um, two books that I always recommend about afterlife ideas in different cultures. And one is by a guy named Gregory Shushan. S-H-U-S-H-A-N, and I can't remember the title. And the other one is by Mark Mirabello, which is called A Traveler's Guide to the Afterlife, I believe. And both of these guys have researched afterlife beliefs and near-death experiences in cultures around the world. And, And what we know now is that they are culturally influenced. So if you're a Hindu, you're not going to see Jesus and the saints in your near-death experience. Right. But if you're a Christian, you're not going to see all the Hindu deities in your near-death experience. So it kind of shows that we bring with us what we, are all, what we already have in this life. It doesn't just disappear and we go into this objective, neutral place that's the same for everybody. I think eventually... If we stay in the afterlife and it's not a near-death experience and we don't get brought back and, like, we're really in there for good, Mm -hmm. then that stuff starts to fall away. But we don't hear about that because the people who report back from the afterlife are people who came back. So how do we know? Exactly. Yeah. I've heard it so many times. The things that we first see are the things that we're most familiar with. And that's comforting, Mm -hmm. I think. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, well, and it's not just so much that it's comforting, but that everything is projection, right? So, I mean, in in just having physical bodies, we're projecting our consciousness into these physical forms, right? Right. So when when we're without the form, then we go and we project our consciousness out onto whatever is there. And, you know, we've been alive and in this culture and we've absorbed all these teachings. And so when we go into the afterlife, we're going to take that with us. It may not stay, the, you know, we're not going to hold on to it the way that we do when we're in life, and it will change. But, yeah, there is no, you know, I mean, this is what I say now. I would never say that I know what happens in the afterlife. No. You know, and anyone who says, I had an argument on Facebook the other day with a woman who said, I can tell you exactly what happens in the afterlife. I'm a medium, and I can tell you exactly what happens. And we were all laughing at her, <laughs> saying, no, you can't. We can't you can, even you can, say what exactly yeah. happens in life because there's now 7 billion people on the planet and we're each going to have a different tomorrow. <laughs> so yes. I do think the afterlife will be unique 
some similarities for sure. Yeah, and we're each going to have a different afterlife, not just because of the cultural considerations we bring with us, but because of our own personal experience and the journey of our soul from all the lifetimes that we've lived. There's no two alike, like there's no two snowflakes that are identical, right? Right, right. Terry, can I ask you about your son and what first got you involved sure. with this? Because your first book is Embracing Death, A New Look at Grief, Gratitude, and God. If I'm not. That's actually my second book. Oh, it's your book. second book. Oh, oh, wait, you know what? I have them not in order. A Swan in Heaven, Conversations yes. Between Two Worlds. Okay, pretend yeah. I said that first. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so a swan. So my son um, had a rare metabolic disorder called metachromatic leukodystrophy. And it presented when he was about seven years old, and he got diagnosed when he was 10, and they gave him five to 10 years to live. So it was progressively degenerative. He went from being a perfectly normal kid to needing total care in a wheelchair, in diapers. He couldn't talk. He couldn't use his body at all. And he died at 16. And because I was always kind of a woo-woo person, I, I responded to all this differently than some other person might. In addition to, you know, the shock and the sadness and the grief and the loss, I also had a spiritual curiosity about it. Like, what is the meaning of this? Why did this happen? Why did this soul come into this life in the form of this boy and me into the form of his mother? And we planned this interesting journey together. So I always looked at at it that way. And I realized that he knew way more about this than I did. Even though I was the mom, I couldn't assume that I knew what was right and what was wrong more than he did. So I kind of let him be my teacher. And I would do things like, um, you know, I, I realized that a 10-year-old kid in America, the only thing they know about death is what they see in movies and on TV. And it's always violent and right. bloody and screaming. And I didn't want him to think that. So I started finding books and websites and things where I could introduce him to Buddhist ideas of death and Native American ideas and all these peaceful, beautiful things about being out of the body. And I thought, yeah, I'm teaching him this. Well, then I realized it was really him teaching me that. Yes. And, um, uh, had a friend, Rebecca Covington, at the time, who was an amazing channeler. And I was having readings with her quite frequently. She channeled uh, a group of beings, and they would give me the most incredible guidance about how to walk with my son on this journey. And so by the time he died, I was so prepared for it. You know, I had been doing guided meditations with him, and synchronizing breathing with him and all of this so that I was comfortable and he was comfortable with the idea. And I would tell him, you know, what I, I'd say, you know, here's what's going to happen. You're going to just kind of close your eyes and go to sleep. And then you're going to wake up again. And when you wake up again, you're not going to have this body. You're going to be just free. You could fly, you know, and we just have these wonderful conversations um, so I tried to take that fear away from him. And I think that I succeeded because after he died, 30 minutes after, he started talking to me just like I'm talking to you now. And essentially dictated most of that first book, A Swan in Heaven, which came out in 2007. And I was shocked. I didn't know that I was going to be able to channel him like that, but boy, did I love every minute of that. And he gave me so much information about what happens when you die, at least in his own death. And um, that eventually led to the second book, which was Embracing Death, which was not so much about our personal story like the first one, but was more about death in general and multicultural ideas about death. And metaphysical family trees and how we incarnate and with whom and why. And that all came from him. Pretty brilliant son and brilliant mom. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Pretty brilliant son. Well, he, he was always really good with words and he used to say, you know, before he got sick, just insanely brilliant things like, 
Oh God, I can't. I'm. I I have so many of them, and I can't think of any That's right okay. now. But that it happens it made sense. Spot. It made sense to me that he would start talking like this after death. You know, when he no longer had a body that couldn't talk, he had a lot to say. And um, one of my favorite uh, parts. In I think it's in the second book, The Metaphysical Family Tree, is how we came to be together and how we plan our incarnations. And the way he described it is in between incarnations, in the interlife, which, you know, Michael Newton calls it the interlife, not the mm-hmm. afterlife. Um, it's like you're sitting around a cosmic conference table with a bunch of people planning what your next incarnation is going to be. And it's like I said to everybody at the table, well, you know, I think I want to be some kind of spiritual teacher, or I really need to do some work on loss and grief, you know, which is something that I've been wanting to work on or I've neglected in my past lives. And so he's sitting next to me going, hey, I can help you with that. How about I come in as your kid and I have this weird disease and I, you know, get sick and I die and blah, blah, blah. And we, we like shake hands and say, let's go. And we jump into our incarnations and of course we don't remember planning any of this right but but that's how it happens that sure is empowering i my dad died of cancer and family fell apart and what at the time was the absolute worst thing that's ever happened in my life now eight years later has turned into the best thing because i've been able to touch so many lives with what i've discovered and really i look at it just that way every my siblings my dad we all had a part to play that we said, okay, you do this, then I'll do this. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And that sure is more empowering than making people wrong for their behaviors and really looking at our own personal growth. That's a really good way to say it. And, you know, I'll do this and you do that isn't necessarily the thing that you want to do, you know, and like somebody volunteers to be the person who dies or the person who's sick or the abuser or the addict or whatever different roles are being played in each person's life story. Someone's volunteering for that role. And that's a very evolved being who would say, I'm going to come into the world and I'm going to be a drug addict, or I'm going to be, I'm going to be the guy who beats you up. I mean, and, and that's getting, you know, a lot of people can't wrap their minds around that, but the way you arrive at forgiveness and acceptance and the ability to see that all people are just souls journeying together Yes, is if you've got that person in your life, if you've got the abuser in your life, instead of seeing it as just a random act of victimhood that happened to you, realize that you've crossed paths with that person for a reason on a soul level. You agreed to meet here and now at this intersection of time to have this experience together. You know, that's real hard for people to look at it that way. It Most is. people think it it's random. Well, also, I, I'm sure you've done this in all the things you've studied and all the education, but you know, you really look to what makes people who they are. And so much of people are victims of their past. The abuser probably got abused at a young age. And it, it just can help you also look at people from a level of compassion and um instead of the make wrong. And, you know, there's plenty of people volunteer their time with children so that they grow up really feeling empowered and that their dreams matter and that they're good people as opposed to growing up. A lot of people, a lot of kids get the opposite side. So we can be a powerful force in the life of someone else and also really be empowered uh, why we picked the journeys we're on. I guess that's the best way of saying that. Well, and, you know, if you look at um, cosmologies from different cultures, so, for example, in Buddhism, in Tibetan Buddhism, in the Book of the Dead, what they, the way they describe how this works is when somebody dies, the priest, the Buddhist priest sits next to the body and reads this book to them. And it tells them of, of the, the 49 days in the bardo, it's called, And it's like, okay, here you are in the afterlife. Now you're going to see this and you're going to turn left and see this over here and see that over there. It gives them the whole description and it guides them through these various planes of consciousness that they're going to experience during the, this initial stage of death. And what happens in the end 
Well, what happens along the way is you encounter demons, but you realize that they are not external. They're not coming from outside of you. They're just projections of your own fears and darkness and and stuff that you've carried through all your incarnations. And when you see them and you recognize, oh, that's just my stuff. That's not a demon coming at me from the outside. Every time you recognize that, you're, you get a billion times more enlightened. And so eventually what happens is you, you get incarnated again. But with that knowledge, you can begin to see that everybody on earth is really kind of a blank screen to carry your projection. And that you can heal yourself by realizing that you're responsible for how you react to everything around you. And um, it's real hard to do that, you know, but there are processes that can teach you how to do it. For example, I was just working with a, a trauma client the other day, and I told her this little process that is very helpful. When you're trying to detach from a traumatic relationship or a traumatic imprint, you can do this little ceremony where you just light a candle and you picture the person that you're trying to unhook from all these angry attachments to, and you say, I release you completely to your path. I release you completely to your path. And you say that a few times and then you blow out the candle and you're, and you're programming your brain to let go of your grip on that person. Because let's just use the example of an abusive husband. Okay. And you live with him every day and the abuse is constantly going on, constantly going on. But you are, are clinging onto your anger and onto your pain. You live in that pain. And the only way that you can really, really heal is learn how to separate yourself from living inside that pain all the time. And you can program your brain to release that connection in your thinking. So it kind of just shows that we're responsible for our own little space in the universe. And eventually you can leave that abusive relationship and you can, you know, leave the addiction. You can do all of that, but we don't have a lot of good tools in, you know, most uh, psychology and counseling settings because they lack the spiritual tools. Most of them are so focused on the mind and not the spirit. So with the spirit, you know, you want to use things like sacred ceremony and meditation and deep, deep inner work. Right. I'm sorry, I could go off on a tangent. Oh, I'm loving it. No, I think this is great. This is a great conversation. I want to ask you about your third book before we talk about the conference mm-hmm. and all kinds of things. Um, but Turning the Corner on Grief Street, Loss and Bereavement as a Journey of Awakening. Because I know, as I'm sure you know this too, a lot of people that come into our uh, new friendships here are people that are suffering with grief. You know, loss of a loved one has them start looking for answers. So why did you write this book? Well, I wrote that book. Uh, <laughs> this is a very funny story, and it's actually in the book. So I I was actually in the shower one day, and I was kind of receiving this channeled message, and it said this. You know, being in grief is like you feel like you're standing on the sidewalk with your feet stuck in cement, and you can't move. But if you could separate from that just long enough to look a little bit further around, like look around the corner of that street down to the next block. And you see that there's a whole other neighborhood over there, or you could go up in the elevator of the skyscraper and look at the world from that view up high looking down, or you can go down in the subway station and take the subway and explore the world underneath i.e. the subconscious there's all these different facets and angles that you can look at grief from and so i posted that on facebook and it got spread all over the place and ended up being shared in some grief groups with people who were really really angry and were really in acute grief and it really made them mad and people were saying things like I live on Grief Street. So what? I don't want to look around the corner. 
I like it right where I am. I'm yeah. angry, and, and this is where I want to stay. And one person wrote, oh, Terry, you know, you're just trying to make money off of other people's pain. What are you going to do, write a book called Turning the Corner on Grief Street? Yes, I am. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, yes, what a great title for a book. So seriously, that's how it started. And I started the book talking about this exchange on Facebook. And at that time, I was um, in school, and I was very deeply involved in hospice volunteering. I was working in an inpatient hospice. I was with dying and grieving people all the time. I was doing a, uh, my chaplaincy internship. So I had a lot of really good new information about how to work with grief that I didn't have in the previous books. Mm-hmm. So that book is a little bit more practical, maybe a little more clinical than the first two. But it really does focus on um, getting out of pain because that's what we all want. But not everybody's ready to get out of pain. You need to stay with your pain for a certain amount of time. You know, you never want to push anybody out of there unless they're ready. In my workshops, um, I try to limit my workshops to people who are at least six months out from their loss. Because any sooner than that, for a lot of people, a lot of the processes and exercises we do are little ceremonies and rituals that are that are symbolically get you to remove the pain symbolically from your body and put it into the form of a little rock or some ceremonial thing that will do and separate it from you. And a lot of people aren't ready to do that. And I understand that. You know, you I, I need your pain. Uh, you need your yeah. pain. There's anger involved. I probably would have been one of those people that would make a negative comment. <laughs> I know. Because mm-hmm. <laughs> back in the day, I wasn't, I mean, I'm usually a happy-go-lucky person, but boy, in the grips of grief, I, I was somebody I don't even recognize. I never even knew existed within me. So, any- Yes. And I never meant for any of that to go to a bereavement page on Facebook that somebody shared it you know, with their grief group. And that, that kind of thinking is not right for a grief group. You know, if I was going to speak at a grief group, let's say like the compassionate friends, I would say something very different than what I'm saying to you right now. But you never know too what, when you hit somebody's nerve, I I remember there's a book called the fun of dying and I got really pissed off by that title, but it had me open the book. And read it and order it. Yeah, then... I know the book and I know the person who wrote that book. And as soon as I saw that title, I said, this person has no experience being with dying people oh. because it isn't, it isn't, there's nothing fun about it. Yeah. No. I mean, there's fun after you die in the afterlife, but I don't think that she was talking about, talking about that. Yeah. It is more about afterlife. And I, and I, yeah. and I'm actually grateful that I read it because it opened me up to a bunch of other people and, and it is about uh, it is about afterlife, not the actual dying. But yeah, like, she should have called it something else then. Yeah, uh, you know, my book is kind of in your face too. We don't die, and it's pissed off a lot of people, but it's also had them open the book. So I get it, and I think you. Probably... Oh, but we don't die is a fabulous thank title. Thank you. You know, thank it's you. Great title because it's true. I mean, you know, it's it's true that we don't die. It's but the fun of dying. No hospice worker would ever say that dying is fun. Dying is very difficult. It's like being in labor, delivering a baby. Is it fun delivering a baby? Not really. Right. (laughs) It's beautiful after the baby's born, but labor is not fun. No. And and the labor of dying is is definitely not fun. Right. Anyways, with all that being said, the afterlife, there's lots of good... um, I think that's oh, where yeah. that came from. But let's talk about the conference. You have the okay. original Afterlife Conference on planet Earth, I believe. And you yeah. have had so many incredible speakers throughout the years. Uh, I know you've held it in Orlando and, and other places as well. And I'm always very motivated to see what you've got going on. You don't just offer the Afterlife Conference every year. I'm so delighted looking at your website that you have past conferences that have been filmed. I mean, you're definitely somebody who provides lots of information, but talk about maybe some of your past speakers or what's upcoming. I know that here we are in February. Um, The sooner people sign up, there's 
discounts and things like that. But let's just talk about all that you do within the or some because it's a lot in the Afterlife Conference, if you would. Well, um, when I first started out, I was very focused on mediums mm-hmm. and afterlife studies in particular. Right. But as I personally started to expand my knowledge to more academic stuff and comparative religion and practices, you know, from different traditions like shamanism and African spirituality and the stuff I was learning, I kept putting that into the conference more and more every year. So it's really changed. Um, We still have mediums, of course, but we do not lead with the mediums. They're not the top billing. We have a medium, our gallery style mediumship reading on Sunday morning and we've had Thomas John and Suzanne Northrup and Hollister Rand. These are incredible, fabulous mediums that we mediums. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, the mediums are there all weekend. You know, uh, you can book private readings with them. Some of them do small groups. So we still have the presence of mediums. But our primary thing is I want to provide real solid education for people. I don't want you to just go to a medium over and over again. You know, I want you to learn how to do it yourself. Right. So that, you know, we have workshops where the mediums will teach you how to develop your intuitive skills. We also have workshops where we have our shamans teaching how to do um, what they call journeying, journeying out of the body uh, through visualization and meditation to visit other realms and we have William Bowman. He's been with us three times, and he's really big on teaching out-of-body journeying. Um, uh, we have a guy this year, Phil Borges. He's uh, a photographer who travels all over the world and studies the spiritual traditions of indigenous people, um, the people in the mountains of Tibet, the people in Kenya, people in China, and he photographs the shamans and the ceremonies. And so he is going to be talking about, you know, what their death and afterlife traditions are. And um, we have also as a keynote, a guy by the name of Brian Richards. And he's at Johns Hopkins Medical School doing research on using psychedelic drugs, psilocybin, to relieve death anxiety. Hmm. so you know that's the kind of stuff that we so we've got everything if you want to just you know do nothing but listen to mediums all weekend and get readings you can totally do that or you can delve into you know research on relieving death anxiety or or indigenous practices um we have a couple of presentations about how to how to survive your religious upbringing if it gave you toxic ideas like, you know, punishment in hell. That's a big <laughs> issue for a lot of people. Yes, it sure is. I just, it's a <laughs> laughter of recognition. For yes. Uh, we, well, we're really big on that. And my um, doctoral dissertation is called Toxic Theology as a Contributing Factor in Complicated Grief. Because I've seen so many people who, even though their loss was three years ago, five years ago, they are not healing. And they're, you know, still stuck in a real post-traumatic stress kind of response because of the religious beliefs that they have. So if their son committed suicide, they are not healing because they're so worried that he's in hell. And, you know, I've worked with a lot of patients in the hospital who have received a terminal diagnosis and they're not able to die consciously because they're so afraid of hell, but that's a whole other discussion. Anyway, uh, back to the conference. So the conference is a blast and we move it to a different city every year. This year we're going to be in Salt Lake city, Utah. Um, June, June, six, June six or 4th, nine. or 4th, 6th or 9th. Six or ninth, yep. And, um, we right now we have our early bird discount, but it expires in a couple of days. By the time this airs, it'll be over or almost over. But we have another discount if you are a group of two or more. Um, you have a really deep discounted group rate, which is equal to the early bird discount. So we try to make it affordable and accessible to as many people as we can. That's why we move it around. And That's nice. And where is it being held? 
uh, at a hotel in downtown Salt Lake City, uh, the Radisson. That's nice. It's a nice yeah. city there. And is it something yeah. where there's times that the whole group is together and then other times people choose to go to other yeah. workshops or not? Am I right in saying that? Yeah. So we have, we have general sessions in the evenings with the keynotes and we have meals. You know, we have lunch and dinner on both Friday and Saturday. So it's really important to me that we have meals together. Yeah. And that's when people get a chance to just hang out. And then at the end of the evening, after the keynote general sessions, we have what I call afterlife after hours. And everybody goes to the bar <laughs> and hangs out there. So That's funny. We have lots of fun. It's a fun, fun conference. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. It's so many other, I don't want to say other conferences, but if there's not things planned for people to be together, it's so easy for people to just take off and go back to their room. A lot of people travel to these things alone and to just, you're sitting at a dining room table with somebody you meet after life, after hours, yeah, you have a drink or two and you get relaxed. And I tell you, I, I'm sure you feel the same way. You meet people at these events that you can have for the rest of your life as close friends. And you're talking on a level that's not superficial. You're not talking about the weather or you know, asking how are you and not caring about the response. These are people that honestly care. Many of them have been in, you know, within a grief or whatever before, and um, you're in a really good group of people. It's a, it does. It creates a lot of intimacy. And it's not only that you're talking at a deeper level, but you're talking with this group of people about things that you may not be able to talk about in your rest of your life, sure. in your other social life, you know, so the people get, I had somebody there this year at our conference in Orlando who came by herself and she was really nervous about being alone. And she was always asking me like, oh, I don't want to sit by myself. And can I meet somebody? And can I hang out with you? Because, you know, I don't want to be alone. And I kept saying, you know what, you got to stop worrying about that. You're not going to be alone. You're going to have so many friends. And the rest of the conference, I never saw her. Every time I saw her, she was with a group of people laughing and walking, going somewhere, you know, it was, it's like that. Nobody is alone. People connect so deeply. And this year we're also having grief sharing sessions, one or two of them each day. So the people who are grieving can get into a small group with other grievers and tell their stories and do sharing. So we want, you know, we have that and you get so close to people so fast, as you know, you know, when you're, when you're sharing that kind of stuff. So everybody's in love with everybody else by the end of the weekend. And just because it's afterlife stuff, you know, I think in, in the beginning of me traveling, I had a little fear, but then it's like, this is actually fun. I mean, this is, whether you know, I've seen some real playful mediumship demonstrations and things, and it's, just because the word death does not mean that there's anything scary there. I mean, it really is joyful to be around such like-minded people and learn and grow. And then probably these ceremonies too. I, I've only been to one shamanic thing and I just thought, ah, it's pretty great. Oh, the ceremonies are so incredible. I mean, well, hold that thought about ceremonies for just a minute. I want to go back to um, what you said about, Oh, what did you say? Now I just lost my... Oh, I love being here. Oh, what you were saying. Oh, about fun. So when we were in St. Louis, I think it was in 2015, the woman at the hotel who's the meeting planner on site there said the, my favorite thing anyone ever said. She said, you know, we have big conferences here all the time. We have like Apple comes here for their conference and Disney, you know, and all these people who come here for work conferences. And the people are always like, kind of bummed out because they don't really want to be here because it's part of their job, you know, and they're not really that happy. She said, you have the happiest conference I've ever seen. And I've worked in this hotel for 12 years and your conference is about death. Why is everybody so happy? It was great. It was my favorite feedback ever. That's super. Yeah. And so then, so so now going to the ceremonies, um, one thing that I have learned that we are really lacking in this culture is we do not have adequate ceremonies for our milestones. You know, we have a wedding and a funeral and a birthday party and, you know, we throw in a few creative twists on these things here and there, but we really don't have anything that is really useful and practical like other cultures have. And so I love what we do with our ceremonies. And so just as an example uh, one year, I taught a mini version of my workshop, Grief as a Mystical Journey, 
And part of what we do is we get, um, this is a very small part of a bigger ceremony, but we get a handful of rose petals and we blow into the rose petals. We blow all our pain and our anger and our stuff into these rose petals. And then we throw it into a, a big bowl and we pour water into the bowl and the water absorbs all of that stuff. And you can also pray into the rose petals and just whatever you want to put in there. And then after my workshop, I took this bowl and I put it out in the main area of the conference with a piece of paper that said, take some rose petals, blow your prayers and your tears and your love and your pain into them and put them in this bowl. So by Sunday morning, we had this giant bowl of floating rose petals. And we used that bowl in the Sunday closing ceremony where um, it's, it's too complicated to explain, but ultimately what we all did is a processional walking down to the water. This hotel happened to be on a, a bay and we poured the water and the rose petals into the, into the bay and watched them float away. And this is how we gave our prayers and our pain and our healing to spirit, to God, whatever you want to call it, that's a ceremony that really works because it moves energy from point A to point B. We don't have a lot of that in, in mainstream society. So we use ceremony a lot at the conference. Very important to us. Oh, I like it. I, you know, I don't use ceremony. I'm just thinking, do I? The only time I've seen ceremonies are being at conferences and workshops and things. And, and I remember one of them, it was a, releasing pain and we each had to take a rock or a twig or a leaf or something and, and say a prayer to this, uh, you know, to give it our pain and then either mm -hmm. we buried it or threw it in the water and, you know, just to, to return to mother earth. But it mm -hmm. just put enough distance between whatever that topic was or the thing that was causing us pain. And I think for human beings, if we're stewing too much on, one thing and it never leaves our mind and we can never get in the present moment there's there's not a chance of healing so to have a ceremony and toss the rocks in the water or whatever that may be i think it can really help with healing and do you talk about healing at all at the afterlife conference yeah sure we talk about healing all the time it's all about it's all about healing i really like what you said is that it puts some distance between you and the pain it gives you a little breathing space. And it also, when you take that rock or that twig and it's holding your pain and you throw it into the river or you bury it in the earth, you've actually moved that pain out of your body and placed it outside yourself and given it to a force bigger than yourself. What I always say is the earth is big and strong and can hold all that energy a lot better than your little body can. Oh, beautiful. Right? Yeah. Yeah. And so you you separate, you put in a little breathing space. You said it really well. I mean, in you know, in trauma work, when we look at people with PTSD, what's happening is they're constantly constantly living in that aroused, agitated, fearful state that they entered when their trauma happened. They never got to separate from it. And they're there all the time. And so in trauma work, you do little symbolic things like this, too, to show them that, oh, you can take a breath. There is a space where that anxiety does not have to be present. So, yes, that's exactly what it does. It creates, it creates that separation between, from, between you and your pain so that you can learn how to live without it. Oh, if you're it. ready. Yeah. Sometimes, you know, I have bad days, Terry, and I've got some things that happen too. And um, when things get really bad, I just imagine this big hand, I believe it is the hand of our creator. And just mm -hmm. whatever that is, I just say, you take it. And then if it comes back into my mind, nope, <laughs> God's got it, you know, just yeah, I can't, I can't deal with it because truly there are things that we human beings can't figure out, especially when other people do things to us or whatever that may be. And um, having that space is, gosh, it's just a blessing. Well, and it, it's good to have a physical object like the rock or the rose petals rather than just a vision of a hand or a God or something to actually have a physical object 
makes it a lot more practical and functional because you can actually see it being taken away when you when you throw that rock into a river and there becomes the ceremony too can't just do the ceremony with my imagination yeah yeah and you don't have to do anything special you just you just blow your anger into the rock and throw the rock into the river you can do that anytime you can do it 10 times a day you know it's it's all it all works can we do that not just with an anger or pain but if we have a prayer for someone yes you can absolutely do that it all works exactly the same way you know and and a, a new technique that i recently learned is something you can do with good feelings is to also get a rock and hold that rock squeeze that rock in your hand and think about your happy place you know your peaceful place like the thing the moment Whatever it is you do that makes you happy, if it's, you know, cuddling up in your bed with your cat or your meditation place or going to the beach. One woman I talked to um, really loves to swim and being under the water is her peaceful place. And so think about that place and think about how you feel in that place and squeeze that good feeling into that rock. That is a rock that you keep with you all the time. Or you keep it on your altar. And whenever you need to remember that feeling, you go and you hold that rock and you let it feed the feeling back to you. So that's one way to work with good feelings. And you can absolutely put your prayers into the flowers. And it doesn't have to be the anger and stuff. Mm -hmm. You know, the flowers and the rocks and the twigs. I did something the other day where I I was um, having to deal with something that I hadn't dealt with in a long time. And I realized that I had a lot of negative charge on this particular thing that I'd been carrying with me for years. And I didn't want to carry it forward with me into this new thing that I was doing. So I went out in my yard and I said some prayers for healing. Like I want to be healed of this thing now. I don't want to carry this into, into the next phase of my life. And I, I think I had some flowers. I can't remember exactly what I used, but I dug a hole in my yard. I have this little sacred grove where I do a lot of ceremonies and I buried these flowers and um, these leaves, herbs, different things that I had. And I buried it in the ground to say, you know what? I'm done with that thing now. I'm going forward with healing. And when I buried it, I realized it was a grave. Yes. And I, and I was, I made this little grave in my yard for this, part of my thinking that I didn't want anymore. So that was, you know, a prayer for healing. This has been really good, Terry, because I was going to ask you just for a little tip or tool we can all use and you've given about six of them. So (laughs) (laughs) Um, I would also love everybody to go to my website called spiritualityandgrief.com. Okay. You'll see, you'll see all of this stuff there. And so that's the website for my workshops and, you know, counseling and things that I do. And the website for the Afterlife Conference, of course, is afterlifeconference.com. Great. Well, I didn't know about spirituality and grief, but I'm going to check that out as well. Thank you. Terry, we just have a few minutes left. Any closing words or anything that I didn't ask you or that you didn't mention or just reach in that why? Oh, this is so much stuff. There's so much. But it goes by fast, Um, does it not? (laughs) It does. Um, You know, I think, I mean, to sum up, I would say, you know, create ceremonies for everything. Um, Simple things like uh, that, you know, I release you to your path. Um, Releasing someone to their path is so powerful because the only reason we have conflict with other human beings, there's only one reason. And the reason is that they won't do what we want them to do. Yeah, Yeah, that's true. Right. That's it. There is nothing else. You know, and so when you start focusing on releasing control of other people, of events, um, and start programming your brain to realize that you can live without having that control, it really, really helps. So simple, and you release your attachment to experience. So if you had a traumatic loss, let's say, um, and I've had many people I've worked with who, you know, came home from work one day, opened the garage door, and found their son hanging. from the rafters. Many, many people I've talked to have had that experience and others like it. How do you detach from that image? How do you detach from feeling like I could have stopped this if only I had done this? 
And you do that by releasing that soul to its path. And you say to that dead son, I release you to your path. I respect the choice that you made. It's not the choice I would make for you. But I'm not going to judge you for that anymore. I release you to that path. You know, I mean, that's a really hard thing to do with a suicide. But it's the only thing you can do. Um, thank you for that. And I just just feel drawn to ask you this. As far as people taking their own life, do you have thoughts about what happens to them in the afterlife? Same thing that happens to everybody. <laughs> no different. No punishment. No Oh, God. I, no. I know that, but I know who's listening right now, and I know the questions people have. And, and no, who's going who's gonna to give the punishment? I know. Nobody. That's the question I would ask back to them. Who, who's the judge that's handing out, you know, punishment? You know, there is, there is nobody like that. There you know, we, we, we do a good enough job of, you know, punishing ourselves and carrying our guilt and our fears with us. We don't need, there is no third party right. force that is making decisions for us. Mm-hmm. And so when you talk to mediums who've worked with a lot of suicides, not one will ever tell you that a dead person who had suicided said, oh, I'm here burning in hell. No medium will ever tell you that. No. Because that doesn't exist. What they will tell you is that the person has lots of regrets for the pain that they've caused to others. And they're working through their life path and their life's work. And that's part of what they're working on. Right. That's great. No, no, punishment no, no, no punishment. But I know no it's easy for me who's not had that happen to me. Uh, if I were in the, the shoes of someone who had a loved one go that way, you know, things might be different. But just there's just so what I believe is love, comfort, growth, healing, and all that. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I just send prayers to that person. Cause I, I can't, I've lived in a healthy brain all my life, almost all my life. I know when I grieved the worst, I was in a state of depression that I never even knew existed. So I try to have compassion for people wherever they are at. Well, belief in punishment will always interfere with your healing mm-hmm. always. And I see it all the time. That's what I did my dissertation on, you know, so we got to get rid of that. And a lot of the great religious scholars, one of my favorite people in the world, Bishop John Shelby Spong, mm-hmm. who was at our conference in 2016. Um, he's an Episcopal Bishop will be the first to tell you that notions of heaven, hell and punishment have got to go. They have no place in today's world. They were created by the early church to control the population, and uh, they have no function or purpose in spiritual life. So that would be my that would be my parting comment. <laughs> I love it. I love it. And then also on your afterlife conference website, just because I found this earlier, I was able to um, purchase a past conference the videos so i haven't watched them yet but it's just like oh you can see past things i i know that yeah you can definitely yeah. do that you can um you can see our live streams there's links on there for that yep you have all kinds of great things so that's at afterlifeconference.com so in closing uh one more thank you to reverend terry daniel thank you terry thank you so much sandra it was wonderful to talk to you i'm glad we got to meet and talk and get to know each other a little bit yes oh do you have a facebook group you mentioned as well correct it's it's called afterlife awareness and after death communication okay got it and if people if people want to stay in touch with us the best thing for them to do is go to afterlifeconference.com and click on subscribe and then you'll be on our email list and i'll send you all that stuff excellent Thank you, thank you, thank you. And for our listener, thank you for taking the time to listen to this episode. This episode 296, hard to believe if we don't die radio. I know. And all episodes are available at wedontdieradio.com as well as on YouTube. And the last 100 episodes are on iTunes, iHeartRadio, and many other podcast sites. We Don't Die Radio, uh, you can sign up for my 
mailing list and get a copy of my audio called How to Survive Grief. I've got a PDF called uh, Sandra's 19 Reasons to Believe in the Afterlife and read several chapters in my book, We Don't Die. Um, A little shout out. I also have a Facebook group or we have a Facebook group, We Don't Die Listeners. Thank you. Thank you for just being someone who is interested in this wonderful afterlife topic, but it tells me it's more than that. It's you're li- looking at your life, who you are, and we try each and every episode to empower you to really have a great life. So I'm taking with me so much from Reverend Terry Daniel today, and I've got some people I need to release to their paths and the ceremonies. But in closing, my name is Sandra Champlain, and I've been your host on We Don't Die Radio. I do believe that life is an education for the soul and that your life here on earth is important. Take a few minutes, check out afterlifeconference.com and spiritualityandgrief.com. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you soon. Mm-hmm.